With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia. This is The Bright Side with Technisha. A daily broadcast on real-life issues that will keep you motivated. And now, here's your host, Technisha. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you to all for tuning in to another episode of The Bright Side with Technisha. Today is June 19, 2014. We are flying through these months so quickly. After a while, we're all going to be saying Merry Christmas and Happy New Year's again. But we're not going to worry about that. We're just going to focus on today. You probably noticed that the time is a little longer. That's because I got two guests on. That's why I told you this show is spontaneous. You never know what you're going to get. You better close your eyes and wake up again because you never know. But with me today is always another special guest. This person has two books out. Well, and they're not even really considered books. They're considered a charity project, and we will explain more about that. But here with me is named Doug Rose, who prefers to be called Ken. So if you call in, please call him Ken. And he may be one of the biggest smart ass, as well as one of the wisest and most entertaining survivors of the hitchhiking adventurers that used to cover America's highways. He is the author of Fearless Puppy on American Road and Reincarnation Through Common Sense. He has survived heroin addiction and death and is a graduate of over 100,000 miles of travel without ever driving a car. Can you imagine that? Not driving a car? No, you can't. Owning a phone or having a bank account. <laughs> Well, we know a lot of people cannot go without a phone, so uh. Now, Ten and his work are a vibrant part of the present and future, as well as an essential remnant of a vanishing breed. So let's welcome and give all our love to Ten. Ten, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Technician. Nice to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. I'm so glad. You're fresh of breath. You're a breath of fresh air. Look, I'm about to get it backwards. <laughs> <laughs> But I hope everybody just sit tight, buckle up, get your coat and your running shoes on, because we are getting ready to start this show. I'm just glad that you are here today. I'm ready for the ride with you, Ten. Let's go a little bit and tell us about your background, because you have an interesting lifestyle, and I love it. Uh, yeah, I should explain a couple of things probably right off the bat. That name, Ten. Uh, everybody asked me about that. It's short for Tenzin Karma Trinley, which nobody can pronounce. And when you go through certain Buddhist uh, initiations, they give you a Buddhist name. It's always something to aspire to, you know, always something to work towards, and that's why they give it to you. They never give you a name like Idiot Who Pukes on His Own Shoes or Dopo Who Walks Into Walls. It's always something that you're supposed to move towards. And that name they gave me, Tenth Karma Trinley, means uh, the activity of the Buddha teaching. 
So I figured I'd keep it because it's a good reference. I mean, there's only so stupid you can be when you have a name like Activity of the Buddha teaching. So I kept right. it, but of course, tens in Karma Trinley, it's too long for people to pronounce, so we kept it at 10. And uh, so that's where the name came from, in case okay. folks are you know, curious about that. Um, the two books that I've written are Fearless Puppy on American Road, and reincarnation through common sense and uh yeah they are books but i'm not really an author well i guess i am now but they were kind of written just as funding vehicles for a charity project because i'm trying to raise funds to sponsor wisdom professionals which is what this is all about uh wisdom teachers uh, anybody who's read a newspaper recently can tell that there's a very sad lack of wisdom in the world. There's a lot of people doing a lot of stupid things. So I figure the more wisdom teachers that there are in the world, the better off we're all going to be. Uh, and so that's the whole idea behind this project, and that's why I wrote the books. It seems like quite by accident that I wrote a couple of really good books uh, because they have, like, between them, 23 five-star reviews on Amazon and one four-star review, which I, I guess is pretty good from what they tell me. So, uh, yeah, uh, but... Uh, you know, I don't know much about marketing, but once I figure that out, I think uh, a lot of them will sell because uh, the books themselves have, have been very well reviewed. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's what the project and the books are about. Now, as far as my background, uh, I was grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and was a teenage drug dealer there. Okay. And, uh, yeah. You know, so uh, it seemed like relatively early on, like it was a good idea to get out of there before dying because I was watching people die all around me, you know. And so I started hitchhiking. Now, of course, I don't know if this could happen nowadays, but this was back in the 60s and early 70s, you know, middle 60s, even early 60s, when like every Volkswagen van was a guaranteed ride. And uh, there was a whole lot more of a friendly, cooperative, we're getting things done feel in America at that time, which uh, unfortunately has changed quite a bit. But back then, everybody was working together on women's rights, civil rights, stopping the Vietnam War, any kind of rights you can think of. Progress was being made in the direction of humanity there. And so that carried over onto the road, and a lot of people wouldn't mind stopping and picking you up and giving right. you a ride, and they, they weren't so scared of everybody else, you know? Right. Uh, nowadays, you get people that, like you said, they're too scared, don't nobody trust anybody anymore. This generation has gone to that. I don't trust you. can't leave your children outside for a minute while feeling that someone's going to snatch them up, and you'll hear an Amber Alert about it, so... It's really yeah, sad. And it, uh, exactly, and there's, it's not that there's more lunatics out there. I think that there's, you know, the same amount of lunatics that we've always had, but it's been beaten into us by the media. There's been this enculturation of fear, I think, you know, driven into us, uh, mostly on TV because that's what most people watch. But wherever you go, 
you know, you get this fear driven into your brain and then you start thinking you can't trust people. And the situation isn't, I don't think, any more dangerous than it was back then for people stopping and picking folks up on the road. But uh, everybody certainly acts like it is. So, uh, but at that time, it was relatively easy. And I left Brooklyn and started hitchhiking out right from Coney Island, got on the Belt Parkway, and started going up. And the first ride worked out so well that I just kept doing it. And I actually did it for like 35, 40 years. I just kept hitching around to different places. And uh, so that's what the first book, Fearless Puppy on American Road, is all about. It has like 80 small chapters about these different adventures and different people that I met along the way. Some like really (laughs) bizarre and from what people tell me entertaining stuff that, that, you know, as you would figure in the course of like over 100,000 miles in 35 years of getting in and out of people's cars, you're going to run into some unusual circumstances there. Right. So, yeah. So that's that's what that book was about, and uh, yeah, that's basically the background. You know, I come from Brooklyn. I was a drug dealer, drug addict, and uh, just decided that that was not the way to go one day, and just got up and left. And uh, you know, the rest is is literally history because it's all written down in the books there. But it's a, it's amazing just just the thought of hitchhike. It's amazing how it just just died down because that's it was the demise of the sixties mentality and that love, like you said, the trust and the belief in the community. And and hit and I think real life to me, hitchhiking hippies they were replaced by hitchhiking ex-cons. And I probably wouldn't even pick up hitchhiking today. I'd be like, no, you're not getting in this car. You're gonna walk or catch this bus. But it's it's just amazing. No one trusts anyone no more. But getting into it, what was the inspiration behind writing these two, doing these charity projects, the Fearless, which one, Fearless Puppy on American Road and Reincarnation through Common Sense? Yeah, well, I wrote those books to fund the project to support wisdom teachers in order to try to increase world wisdom because there are so many stupid things going on that it can't hurt anybody to be smarter. But uh, And I think that's really the only direction we can take in order to get the problems that we currently have solved. But the way that came about was for decades before that, I had been doing other Uh, projects for different kinds of charitable things. I organized them myself and put them together, and usually a bunch of volunteers would join in. And in the mid-'80s, with all the Ethiopian famine relief, uh, about a year or two before that Live Aid and We Are the World and all of that, I started a project uh, locally in a small town in Massachusetts that eventually turned into uh, Massachusetts for Africa and involved the governor. Aaron Neville was an honorary director of the group that I had going on there. Both senators got involved and uh, a bunch of bands and, and, and businesses, labor unions, pro sports teams, you know, the Patriots put it up on the scoreboard and, and, uh, 
Ms. Altick sent somebody to the governor's office for the signing of the proclamation and all that. So there was that project, and I did another one for the homeless and another one for an orphanage in Mexico. And eventually I got to feeling that, you know, there's one underlying cause under all of these problems. I'm doing all these individual projects to try to help people. But under all of it is just a lack of wisdom because you can't be wise and step over. You can be smart. You can be clever, crafty, intelligent, whatever. Step over a homeless person on your way to the country club and not care you know, about what's going on in the world and how other people are suffering. But you can't be wise and do that because wisdom and, and compassion and love are all kind of wrapped in the same skin. So if there was more wisdom in the world, none of these other problems would exist. They'd all be getting taken care of, you know, just as a matter of course, because wise folks won't let that kind of stuff happen. They get bothered by that and they have to do something. And so uh, it occurred to me that instead of doing a project for this thing, and and, uh, they're all very essential. I mean, homeless people need shelter, and people that don't have food need some food immediately. So it's not that those kind of efforts aren't important, but it just seemed to me that an overriding effort to try to inject more smarts into the society would also inject more compassion and love into the society. And at that point, all these other problems would get taken care of just as a matter of course. So that was really the motivation for it was like 20, 30 years of doing other projects, working for environmental groups for a long time, as well as these other charity projects. And it just seemed to me that attacking this at the root of the problem, which is just the lack of lack of wisdom and, and knowledge on the part of the general population would be the way to go. So that's why I wrote the books to sponsor the project, which uh, I hope will lead to having more wisdom teachers around, and everybody will benefit from that. Right. I think we just need more affirmations to really help that flow and feel more love in our life and other people's life. Because I feel the more you open up to flow and love, the more light you add into all of your experiences. So in your opinion, Tim, how can one become more loving and compassionate? More of what? Excuse me? How can one become more loving and make more compassionate? Because I, I know oh. sometimes it's, it's hard for people to get that way. They're, some people are just cold-hearted. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think there's a really easy thing that folks can do, and that's just to sit down and shut up for a couple of minutes every day <laughs> and let your, you know, and let your mind right. get right, you know, because right. uh, everybody's so busy trying to put ten pounds of crap in a five-pound bag, it doesn't work. You're going to bust at the seams. So everybody's running around at this hectic pace, multitasking, doing like a million things all at once, and uh, they can't pay attention to what's important. They get so involved in nonsense and and in trying to do too many things at once. Look, you only have 100% of a brain. If you're working on 20 different things at once, do the math. You know, there's not much uh, uh, of you actually working on each individual project. So 
And, folks, we'd just take time to, like, sit, even if it's just for five minutes in the morning and five minutes at night. Just sit and watch yourself breathing. You breathe from the bottom of your feet up to the top of your head and back down slowly. Now, of course, the lungs only cover a certain region of the chest, but you picture that breath covering your whole body from top to bottom and bottom to top washing over you and you don't pay any attention to the bills and like what the neighbor thinks of you and what the newspaper is saying or what's on TV or anything like that. You just be there with yourself and calm down. All right. And once folks start doing that, even if it's just for five or 10 minutes a day, they'll start doing it more because it feels so good. And once you start doing it more, you get calmer inside, you get more focused. You get to be able to, like, put your attention on one thing instead of having it splattered all over the place on 20 things so nothing is getting your full attention and nothing is actually getting accomplished. At that point, you start making better decisions. When you start making better decisions, you start taking better actions more productive, better for you, better for everybody around you, all right? There's nobody who's ever walked into a house and said, oh, this place is awful to live in. It's too calm. (laughs) It doesn't happen. They go, it's too crazy in here, right? So people would just calm down a little bit and take five minutes to start with and take a deep breath and let it out. I mean, that's going to – it's very, very simple, And it's a good start. And one thing leads to another, you know. Once you start doing that and you learn to mellow out a little bit and you you get into a better position to run your life instead of have your life run you, you know. You hear so many people say that, oh, my life's out of my own control. Uh, Who's going to control it? (laughs) It's your life, you know. Who the hell is going to control it if you don't? So you have to get in control of your own life. And in order to do that, you've got to slow down enough to see what's actually going on in your life and take control of it. So this matter of just sitting down with yourself and being there instead of rushing around all willy-nilly scattered and getting a bunch of things done half-assed uh, makes a whole lot of sense, and it affects everything else that you do. I mean, no matter what else you do, it's going to be positively affected by having 100% of your relaxed attention instead of you being all wired up and, and like, doing something that you regret later, you know. Right. I do agree with that 100%, especially the part where he said just sometimes just shut up and take heed. To hear ourselves talking, we never think. And I get on my chair all the time about that. Just be quiet sometimes. Your mouth runs too much. You're like a motor. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, that's exactly it. And also that happens with the thinking, too. I mean, even if you're not talking, because a lot of times you'd be just sitting there. Let's say you decide, okay, I'm going to do this. So I'll sit down. And you sit down, and then the thoughts start racing, and it's like a three-ring circus. But if you just watch your breath and you don't pay attention to anything else except your breath coming in and your breath going out and your breath coming in and then just like those thoughts aren't even there. If a thought crosses your mind, you just wave to it and say, bye-bye, see you later, I'm busy breathing now. You know. And if you do that, 
your whole system is going to calm down. And when you get your whole system calmed down, you know, your thoughts will calm down, your body will calm down, your blood pressure will drop. You won't start doing so many, like, off-the-cuff things that you would never do if you stopped and thought about them for a minute. And life improves for you, and when that happens, life improves for everybody around you, too. You know? Right. And a lot of people don't think so, but to me, when you overthink something too much, that can affect your health because it, it leads to stress so much. And why do all that emotion? Just let it breathe in and out. Let life take its own course. Like I tell people on my show, put your keys in God's hand and let him do the rest. Yeah, yeah, well, that's where let life take its, you know, and calm down I, and and not push it so much. That's exactly it. You know, that's exactly it. Because if you're trying to push, and I have stress, you mentioned stress, it's, uh, they talk about heart attack and cancer and everything else all day long, but the number one killer is stress because that's what makes all these other fatal diseases happen. Right? Stress, is, is, stress is the backbone of heart attacks and heart disease, cancer, all kinds of other things that, that are causing people to have miserable lives and deaths. And, and everything of that nature is stress-related. You don't see too many calm, relaxed people, you know, unless they're repressing things. I mean, if you're holding it in and you really are stressed out and wired up, you may look calm on the outside. Well, in that case, it's still going to get you. But you don't see any people who are actually calm and relaxed on the inside doing crazy stuff. I mean, they're not going to, like, get cancer, uh, heart attacks. They're not going to go up on a bell tower and start shooting people, you know. And it's a conscious decision. I mean, everybody who is under a stressful situation tries to make out like uh, it's out of their control, but it's always within your control. It's your life. There's nobody else who controls that. Right at this minute, I can go out, get a rifle, climb up a bell tower, and start sniping at people and, and picking people off. Or right at this moment, I could go out and start picking poor people up off the street and take care of them like then become another Mother Teresa, you know. This is a conscious choice. It has, you know, and most of us make decisions that are in between those two extreme options there, of course. But whatever you do, you're not getting, like, floated down a river that the current is so strong that you have no control of it and you get washed away. There's a bank on either side of any river, all right? If it's a river, there's a bank on either side. And if you feel like you're getting pushed along by the current, don't have control over your own life, you're getting swept down the river, you haven't bothered to go over and swim to the bank because there's one on either side. You can get out and take a rest and rethink things and get back to something that's saner and that works a little bit better and involves less stress for you. But a lot of people are in situations and jobs that they feel that they can't do anything about. Well, when they die of a heart attack, then they've done something about it. Do you know when more fatal heart incidents occur? More fatal heart attacks occur at a specific day and time during the week. Do you know what it is? Um, 
I would probably, I would say maybe in the morning time, maybe the first of the month. Monday morning. Monday morning. Now, this is not like some kind of new agey, made it up kind of thing. This is out of the American Medical Association Journal. All right. More fatal heart incidences happen 9 o'clock Monday morning than any other time of the week. How does this happen, and why does it only happen to people? You don't hear about squirrels dying at 9 o'clock Monday morning or birds. They don't know what time it is. They're not worried about it. But some people would actually rather die than go back to work. And even if they don't think so consciously, you know, even if you buried all of what you're really thinking under some kind of, oh, I have to do this and I must do that, and that's all you're thinking about it, your body knows. Your body knows, and your body is reacting to that. And it's having what it considers free action to help you out. Now, if you hate where you're going on Monday morning so much and you just keep driving yourself there and say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, and and you think you have to, and you don't realize you have the ability to make a conscious decision and go somewhere else, then your body is still under that stress, and it's going to come up and say, oh, I can help you out. I'll give you a heart attack. Now you don't have to go there. You know? Oh, boy. And, and that's, just what, that's what happens to people, you know. Wow. Boy, if that don't sound so low down, boy, that's amazing, though. I hope, I hope I'm hope i not unconsciously thinking that because I love to go to work. I like to pay my bills because that's the only way that's I'm going to pay them. So I hope I'm not unconsciously thinking that. But now, because if you're not really thinking, if you're not saying that a lot, how will you know if you're thinking it, though, Ten. You'll know if your hands are shaking, if you're ner- if you're not okay. happy. Happiness is the benchmark, all right? Okay. If you're happy, you you can't be happy and be in a miserable thing that, that's making you, you unhappy. It's like trying to, I, I don't know, it's like trying to do two things at once that are impossible to do all at once. You can't be afraid while you're laughing, all right? If you're afraid of something and you start laughing, then you're laughing. You're not afraid of that thing anymore. So there's certain things that can't happen at the same time. And if you're happy, you're not going to have this kind of negative reaction. All right? Right. If you're walking around and you're miserable and you're aggravated and people, it doesn't take more, much for people to say anything and it sets you off and you get all irritable and start yelling or something, then there's something bubbling under the surface there. But most of this, I mean, people know it. I mean, this is most of this is not where it's like clandestine or hidden or anything. It's people get up and they say, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. I would rather be doing something else. I don't want to be with this person. I don't want to be in this place. I don't want to be at that job. And then they do something else. Now, on the other hand, there's a lot of people who love what they do. And that's a wonderful thing. You could work 80 hours a week if you love what you're doing. But if you really feel bad about what you're doing, if you're doing something that that is really damaging either yourself or society or or the people around you, then that's going to wear on you even if you only work 20 hours a week. You know, it's going to take its toll. 
So I think right. happiness and, and satisfaction are major benchmarks. And if you can be happy with what you're doing, then that doesn't cause stress. What causes stress is when you continue to do something that's not working for you and that makes you unhappy and that is just an irritant. And it's like that... Uh, like the grain of sand in an oyster it irritates it irritates it irritates only when it happens in a human being you don't get a pearl at the end you get a heart attack so there's unfortunately quite a different result than an oyster would get but again at any given time all it takes is a conscious decision to change your course of action it may be a lot more difficult for some people than others all right uh, it's a lot harder for somebody in a very rough situation to say, I'm going to get up and work my way out of here and get into something that to make for a lot more friendly of a life. Uh, some people have it easier and some people don't, but anybody, anybody is in a position to make that conscious decision, move in a positive direction, and to eventually get something working out for them that's a lot better than the thing that's killing them. Right. You know? <laughs> if, if it... no, go ahead. Oh, no. Um, what, Ken, as far as it goes with being spiritual, because everyone probably is to actually get you to that spirituality part in your life. Uh, again, you got to be in touch with yourself. And again, I would recommend as the simplest of starting points, just to sit down for five minutes in the morning and five minutes in the evening. And for anybody who does that, uh, you'll see by yourself that it's going to feel so good that eventually you'll lengthen that time and you'll make sure you have 10 minutes and then 15 or whatever. But if you just start out with five minutes and let your mind go blank and if a thought comes, you just wave it goodbye and all you're doing is watching your breath go in and out and in and out. And once you get in touch with that, basically emptiness there without all the clutter of all the constant barrage of information and activity and nonsense and people trying to sell us stuff and all the artificial garbage. Once you make space for spirituality, it'll show up by itself. I mean, it's always there, actually. I mean, it's just that we have so many layers of crap on top of it that people can't get to it. You know, and the most unspiritual, you know, uh, uh, aggravated, uh, nasty person you can think of has all that goodness inside of them. But since they've been born, they've been, who knows what, beaten or made to work at some place that they hate, so they're constantly going around growling and snarling. They end up getting themselves into relationships that don't work, maybe drug and alcohol abuse or something. I mean, uh, I'm not speaking just because I read it in a book. I've actually gone through this myself. I was a heroin addict, and I actually died of an overdose at one point and was brought back. So I, I know a little bit of something about this. Spirituality, it's not like it drops from another dimension or anything, you know. 
That's not coming from somewhere else. That's inside every human being. That's a part of our birthright. All right, we are a spirituality. And it gets covered up with all the crap, with all the advertising and everything else that we have to take into our systems as part of life and so-called civilization, you know. So what I would suggest as a beginning for all of these problems is just to sit and be quiet. When I say be quiet, that mean, that doesn't mean having like a three-ring circus of thoughts running around in your brain either, which they will because, you know, we're just used to that. But when you see those unwanted thoughts come, just wave them goodbye and take it easy. Don't get attached to them. That's the main thing. Everybody, I mean, even the most highly evolved spiritual masters will have occasional thoughts floating in and out of their brain when they're trying to stay strictly spiritual. Just don't attach to that thought. Don't get emotionally attached to it and try to, like, make a big deal and keep dwelling on it and harping on it. You know, because a lot of times what hurts us is not actually what happens. It's the repetition of that thing in your mind. Like if somebody says something to you and that makes you mad, you feel they treated you disrespectfully and they weren't nice and, and, and it aggravates you. If you let that go as soon as it happens, that person has done you no harm, you know, but uh, what most people do or what a lot of people do is they keep repeating that offense over and over. How could she have said that to me? That damn, damn, I wish I could smack her in the bottom as she said this. And if you do that for a couple of hours before you know it, you're all aggravated. And the person who said the thing to you that aggravated you, they're over somewhere laughing. They don't care or know what you're doing, you know? So, I mean, dwelling on it and repeating the offense is a lot of what damages people. These are all things we do to ourselves, all right? Now, there's enough crap in the world to deal with, and you're going to get things that are going to happen from right. external sources that you have no control over. This is, you know, part of life on a planet where there's more than one person. So wherever humans are involved, there's going to be a malfunction or two. But when you start repeat, when you don't let it go, when you get emotionally attached to it, and you keep like running that offense over and over in your brain and getting yourself more wound up and more pissed off, that's where the real trouble starts. And it's the same thing when you're trying to get in touch with your spirituality. If a thought comes into your mind, just wave to it and say goodbye and let it go down the road and just go back to watching your breath in and out. And it, and or, and it, and and it's just about really trusting. you got to trust that there's something possible to be found. Even during what you were saying, the tough times, we, we're all going to lose something. We might lose our job or anything. But you got to just trust that during, during those times and that everything is happening as it should happen. And to me, when, when you really embrace that spiritual side, you're choosing to believe that God, the universe, or whoever you believe in or the divine has your best interest in mind. That's how you have to... You gotta put your faith in that unknown, and a lot of people yeah. choose not to. But that's that's what it has to be. And of course, as you were saying too, Ken, when he says "shut up" and 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 be quiet, don't mean just to go crazy in your mind. But it's it's all about meditation. And 
and you just turn your mind off because it, it makes me think about P90X when I'm working out and I'm doing yoga. He said, turn your mind off. Don't worry about the things that you have to do today. Don't worry about nothing that's stressing you out. That's just your time to connect with your spirit and your own peaceful center. Exactly. And if something bad happens, you got to realize that's not the end of the line. That's an isolated no. incident and something bad, whether it's losing your job, like you were saying before, or whatever. That is something to move on from, not to get stuck in. All right. right. So just don't get attached to that negativity. You don't want to get stuck in there. You right away let it go. That happened. Okay. What's next? That's better. Where am I moving to now? All right. And, and then you don't like keep harping over and over again on that negative occurrence, which is where most of the people cause themselves a lot of stress. And uh, that's where a lot of the ill health and, and mental illness as well as physical illness comes in, is by the repetition of that stuff. So, yeah. you know, it's just, just what you said. you got to realize that's whatever happened to you. It's not the end of the line. It's an isolated incident. And let it go. Move on from there. Why? Now, what we're going to do, we're going to take a short commercial break. We're going to be back with 10. If you feel like calling in, please do so at 347-426-3751. You're tuned in to Blog Talk Radio with your host, Technician, on the Bright Side with Technician. We'll be right back after this. There's only one station that will keep you happy, Blog Talk Radio. We're taking more of your calls at 347-426-3751. Stay tuned. We'll be back after this commercial break. Every 20 seconds, another kid drops out of school. If we do nothing, 3.5 million kids won't receive a diploma over the next four years. United Way knows that kids who have a caring adult in their life are more likely to make it. And the difference between a dropout and a graduate could be you. Take the pledge to volunteer now at unitedway.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. All right, we're back here with Ken, and we're discussing about spirituality. We mentioned about his two charity projects, Reincarnation Through Common Sense and The Fearless Puppy on American Road. Now, Tim, what makes Reincarnation Through Common Sense different from other books? Of course, we already got one difference. We don't talk about common sense mostly in other books connecting Reincarnation. So what other differences are there? Okay, well, I should mention to everyone that if they want more information about any of this, including sample chapters from the book, uh, how to order it from both books and um background information, the newspaper articles on the previous projects I mentioned, and what this project is trying to accomplish, that's at www.fearlesspuppy.org, and fearless puppy is spelled just like it sounds, and .org, and uh, all of that information is there. What makes reincarnation through common sense different than others written on the same subject. See, uh, Fearless Puppy was all about hitchhiking through America for 35, 40 years. 
reincarnation through common sense is about the half a year that I spent at a Buddhist temple in Southeast Asia. Now, what makes it different, there's a lot of these, you know, Western guy at an Asian temple kind of books. But uh, all of those are about people who went over there expressly to study the Buddhism and the culture and everything else. This one's not like that. I just went over there for the party and uh, ended up getting taken advantage of and uh, I had nothing and luckily a friend of mine knew a head monk in this rural temple that was out in the middle of nowhere people living like had for like a thousand years you know they were really out in the woods and the small dirt paths with scorpions and cobras on them and everything going through the village and like that and uh, so I went there, and the guy, nobody there spoke English, and I didn't speak the language. So my friend could translate, and he was talking to the head monk, and the head monk says, you can stay here, and you don't have to study any of the Buddhism or do anything here. You just, this is your family. We know you had a bad time, so I'll be your older brother. All the monks will be like your brothers, and the nuns will be like your sisters. And they basically adopted me. And I stayed there and wasn't studying Buddhism, which is kind of unheard of, because anybody in that situation who goes to live in an Asian temple is expressly going there to study the Buddhism. So this was uh, that's a very unusual book because it tells all about that kind of stuff but it's kind of from a street level Brooklyn boy you know as opposed to being from a theology student who's going there to study that kind of stuff so it's very different and very much more uh, user friendly and understandable to people there's no like big drawn out terminology and all this complex Buddhist theory that people are always talking about with the Eastern philosophy and everything is put into very simplified terms. I mean, I've had people tell me that uh, reading the book sounds like they're sitting next to a bar, next to me on a bar stool in a bar, and I'm telling them the story because it's that much in regular language. Another weird part about it is that nobody there speaks English. And I didn't speak their language. So I spent half in a place without any conversation. And then, I, you know, a lot of the communication got done by sign language and eventually by psycho-spiritual processes. I mean, and that's not, that's not a weird thing. I mean, every mother has walked into the room as their baby is about to start crying. So this is no weird, like, uh, you know, people talk about these psycho-spiritual processes like they're, you know, such weird things, but uh, it's really not. Every human being does it to some extent, and we just don't always notice that we're doing it and just take it for granted. So, um, but that made it interesting because I had to write 300 pages about an experience that took place in silence. So that's another difference in the book there. And okay. um, 
Yeah. The other thing is that the book isn't about reincarnation. <laughs> <laughs> because the reincarnation that that book is talking about that I'm referring to in there is has nothing to do with dying and coming back in a new body or anything like that. I mean, they do believe in that. I don't even know if I do, but a lot of people do. A lot of people don't. But regardless, this reincarnation that is being addressed in the book has to do with every thought that you have. Wow. And every action that you take makes you a new person. You are who you were plus that added to your character. So that's the kind of reincarnation. And you literally have a chance to remake yourself. I mean, we were talking before about how anybody could just get up and get a rifle and go become a sniper or go and pick up poor people off the street and become another Mother Teresa. And it's that kind of reincarnation. It's actually making the conscious decision and putting in the effort to back up that decision that you want something to be a little bit better for yourself and other people and you're actually going to go about doing it instead of sitting on your butt and like saying, oh, wouldn't it be nice if this was better? And wouldn't it be nice if I wasn't at this job? I, I would all, I always wanted to like do something else. I always wanted to be a chef or whatever it is that you always wanted to be. Actually getting up and putting the effort in to get that done, you know. So that's what that kind of reincarnation is about. So that's why that book is so different from anything else that was ever even vaguely resembling that is because it was about a half a year in a Buddhist temple, but not written by a theology student, you know, and it's from a Brooklyn street level kind of point of view and all the complex philosophy is put into simplified terms. So it's very easily understandable. The reincarnation is not about dying and coming back. It's okay. about a life process that we all do, you know. And also, it, it's a book that was written about an experience that took place in silence. So putting 300 pages of words down about an experience that happened basically in silence and, you know, through uh, what some people might call telepathic communication. But again, every mother's gone into the room when the kid was about to start crying. So there's all this like telepathy being some kind of hocus-pocus is nonsense. It's something that, that happens to all of us all the time. We just don't notice it. Right. It, it's amazing, though. I'm glad that you're explaining that because we do think of reincarnation as that coming in from the body or whatsoever, and mainly its impact on the Western thought because reincarnation really appealed to the to the Western um, thinking, such as the New Age philosophies, because the lifestyle concept provides people with unlimited chance to get life right. So that was the main thing about reincarnation. So I am. I'm glad that you're on the show and you explain all this because our minds is always stuck in one area. So this helps us to get the remainder of this piece. So I'm I'm glad that we are talking about this. So Tim, why why did you really decide to become an indie author? Why did well, I, I know you really don't that, consider yourself an author, but why why go to that type? Yeah, well, 
It was the best way I can think of to try to raise funds for the charity project. All right. Now, in order to fund a, a big increase in the number of wisdom professionals and wisdom teachers in the world, you have to build facilities for them to live in. They have to be able to concentrate on their studies. I mean, all these Buddhist monks and nuns and a lot of the other people who are our, our teachers of, of intelligence, they don't have, like, outside jobs. That is their job, all right? So uh, in order to fund them, you got to be able to get them whatever they need, medical attention, uh, clothing, uh, food, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff, education, books. So in order to make that kind of dough, I figured the odds were a little bit better of selling a whole lot of books than of winning the lottery, although I do get the occasional lottery ticket, but that hasn't hit. But uh, you never know. But, uh, yeah, that's why I wrote the books. And it has the added advantage of that a lot of this stuff that these people who I'm trying to sponsor teach, a lot of the wisdom stuff that I learned from these different teachers uh, is in the books, all right? Even in Fearless Puppy, there's a whole lot of it because I traveled all over America for 35 years. There's like 80 different little chapters, and some are like Native American wise men, and some are about Tibetan lamas. But there's a lot about, you know, hookers and junkies and, and all kinds of people that uh, you can always learn something. If you're paying attention, you can always learn something. The teacher's always out there when the student's ready. So there's also a lot of wisdom in the books as well and so when somebody buys one of these books they're funding the wisdom teachers a sponsorship for an increase in wisdom teachers through the purchase price with the money they're spending on the book but they're also helping to increase wisdom because a lot of what i've learned from different people throughout life is in the book itself all right I mean, right. you would think right. that, uh, you know, that, that well, some people have, uh, everybody has their favorite in Fearless Puppy amongst those 80 chapters about different things. But uh, one of the big favorites is that people have been telling me they like is about an uh, all-lesbian rock and roll and playing a concert for the deaf. Okay. I'm not making that up. I'm not making that up. <laughs> They actually played a concert for deaf people. It completely, wow. like, it blew me off the map. Watching this and hanging out with the people in the audience. Right. And it, it, it was such an education about people who were hearing impaired and what they're actually experiencing that, I mean, there's like no monk or nun or Einstein or anybody in the world could have could have told me that, you know. So there's a lot of this kind of stuff in the book. So I figured it's a double-pronged thing. It gets wisdom out there to people in a very entertaining and, and, and you know, enjoyable form in the form of these true stories that happened to me on the road. And also the money from that they spend buying the book that goes 
to sponsor an increase in more wisdom teachers throughout the world. And again, they can find all of this at fearlesspuppy.org. On the internet, it's got all of this information that tells specifically what the project is trying to do and sample chapters from the book and everything else. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you've given us all that information. So what is what are you working on next? Uh, that's it. Next I'm working on trying to sell the books, all right? I've gotten them written, and I spent like thousands of hours on the Internet and done a lot of interviews and stuff, and I don't know what's going to happen next. Maybe I'll just go walk through the streets of Boston and New York. I'm on the East Coast now, so uh, maybe I'll just go out in the streets with a cart and sell books like that. Right. I, you know, I'm really, I've got another half a book already written, but I'm not really thinking about that now. I'm not going to write anything else until these books accomplish what their purpose actually was, which is to fund the wisdom professionals. So i got to get out there and sell some of these somehow. If you know anybody, there's anybody out there in Radio Land who's an expert in marketing, Please contact me through the website. There's an email address there, and I would be very appreciative of any pointers you can give me because I'm over 60 years old, and uh, when I grew up marketing, meant going to the store for bread and eggs, and that uh, means something altogether different now. So uh, I don't really have a firm grasp on uh, what's going on in the marketing world, so to speak. So. If anybody out there has any pointers, I'd appreciate them. I sure will make sure I pass on that information to someone. I would definitely make sure I do that because I have had plenty of authors who have been through it all. So there is somebody out there who can benefit from this who will be able to give you advice. I would definitely look into that for you, Tim. Now, that would be wonderful. I very much appreciate it because, I mean, the, the thing it's got a lot of stuff going for it. It's got nothing but five-star reviews uh, except for one four-star, so the books themselves are good. And where the money's going is also good. So, uh, right. yeah, if we can get get a little boost with the marketing aspect, that would be a wonderful thing. Um, so, Tim, before we get off the air, what is the message you want the reader to take from the charity project? Well, it's really only one project that's being funded by the two books. Uh, and the message is that, uh, well, I, I think the message is all about just be a little smarter. Slow down a little bit. Don't hurt yourself and don't hurt anybody else. Right? There's a vast misconception in the world nowadays that wasn't around when we were little kids to the extent that it is now that the more selfish and, and hateful you are and more defensive that you are, that things are going to go better for you. This is not going to work in the long run, and it's not even going to work in the short run. Just sit down, take a deep breath, relax. Stop trying to do a million things at once, at least for five or ten minutes a day, and get back in touch with your humanity because, I mean, we're all human beings. And mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are acting more like...
We're having just a little technical difficulties with Ken on the other line, but I want you to go out and make sure you purchase these two wonderful books, The Fearless Puppy on American Road and Reincarnation Through Common Sense. There are some great books that will bring spirituality about you. will become one with Ken. You'll feel like you're part of the family, so please make sure that you go out and do those and check out his website, Fearless Puppy. Um, I appreciate you for being on the show today, Ken. I know that we had a little technical difficulties coming in, but I thank you so much for sharing your spirituality with us. Coming up in a few minutes, we have Lindsay Stein, who is an actress. Now, we all seen Insidious Part 1, but now this one, Insidious Chapter 2, if you haven't seen it, I hope that you do get a chance to see it because it came out last year. So please stay on the air for Lindsay's time, and we'll be right back after this. There's only one station that will keep you happy. Blog Talk Radio. We're taking more of your calls at 347-426-3751. Stay tuned. We'll be back after this commercial break. It's 6.42 p.m. Time for Steve Plato and his son Dylan to do the dishes. They talk about everything from the yuckiness of girls to the awesomeness of his soccer team. Sometimes they don't talk at all. Then, hey! the dreaded <laughs> splash fight. It's dad o'clock, and it's the best time of the day. Because the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Ever wonder what makes us, the Smurfs, so happy? The forest, of course! This is where we, along with the beautiful forest creatures, make our home with beautiful plant life, clean water, and endless adventures. It's a place to celebrate, so discover the forest with your family today. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. All right, I'm back on the air, and I'm very excited because we have another great guest on our show today, and it's Lindsay Syme. Now, we all remember watching maybe the first Insidious, like I told you, and that was some, that was shocking for all of us. Um, <laughs> it, it terrified me. But Lindsay is actually playing in part two. It's, it's, it's a real thriller. If you are not the type of person to actually be scared this will probably overdo it for you. Um, Lindsay, welcome to the show. I'm glad that you're on today. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be talking with you. I am too. You you're such a talented person and you do oh, acting you. and you and you write and I also know that 
you took journalism as well in school, and so did I. Ah, yes. We are broadcasting professionals. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a hard field, so that's why I started my own show. I said I'll, I'll yeah. start this up, and maybe I can get a start somewhere. I didn't want to just die on me. But Lindsay, Absolutely. Um, I think that's so important in a lot of careers. You just have to really make your own path. I think go, good job. Go for it. Right. Now, now with being so young, you have done so much. You you have been in so many theater productions, web series. You rapped with sticky <laughs> fingers. and Sticky fingers. You've been, right. You've been a Disney cast member. Everything that people actually dream of, you have done so much of. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background, though, Lindsay? Sure. Um, I grew up in Nebraska. Uh, it was okay. a great place to grow up, lots of wide open spaces. Um, my parents were both teachers. So I think early on for me, um, education was really important, but also they really encouraged a lot of creativity and uh, reading, which is where I think my love of uh, writing and storytelling and acting came from, was all of that exposure to um, being read to and reading the newspaper with my parents in the morning and, um, you know, it was just a, a big focus for us, um, written words and, and stories and how they connect all of this. So, I, yeah, I went to um, college at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and I double majored in broadcast journalism and acting. And as soon as I was finished there, I headed out to Los Angeles and here I am now. <laughs> Why? So, um, what steps did you have to take to get into acting, Lindsay? Well, um, as far as, you know, uh, I, I did I did study it, in, like I said, in, in school, in college, but I really, and there is a lot to be said for a formal classic education in the theater, um, but, you know, when you're doing, and it's not to, not to downplay it at all, because I do, there's a lot of value there, but... I do think there's a difference between doing Shakespearean monologues and coming to L.A. and and trying to have a career as a working professional in this business. So pretty much felt like I learned everything that I've, you know, that's really I use day-to-day as far as the ins and outs of the business. I learned once I got here just by um, educating myself about the players of the industry and and how things work and um, how to submit myself and, Getting online and social media now is such a huge component of, right, of uh, being relevant and getting known, getting out there. Yeah. And I learn things every day. I still feel every day like I don't know anything. <laughs> and I'm, I'm still a novice at this just because it's a big, you know, it's a big thing to try to tackle it. But at the end of it all, when you, you can feel overwhelmed easily trying. It's, it's an impossible career. It's just really crazy to, to try to have this career. But but it's doable, and it's doable when you when you take the time to, I think, educate yourself and to kind of put the power back in your own hands and say, you know, no, I have something to contribute here, and I have ideas, and I'm just going to, like you did with your show, I'm just going to do things on my own and make a network, right. and I can do this. <laughs> so it's well, like I that feel- conversation between, with yourself between, saying, like, I don't, I need to learn more about this, and no, already, I already have a good idea, and I can, I have enough to go on, and I can, I can venture out on my own, that kind of back and forth. Right, and like I said, you got a long list, her resume is 
build <laughs> up. This young lady has done so much, especially played in my favorite movie, The White Noise, as a supporting actress. I, I definitely love that movie. And television, New Kids on the Block, you name it, she has done it. Been in so many commercials, Pearson, Mazda, Axe, web series. We're talking about the Trisha show. Um, theater, <laughs> our favorite, Romeo and Juliet, A Christmas Carol. Can't never get enough of that one. I love that one. That's a um, classic. Your, and your training is so extensive. Uh, I guess you can never have too much enough training when you're going through acting. Now, Lindsay, with this new, with the movie out, well, it's it's still kind of new to me because I got to actually watch this one. I love horror movies. That I'm surprised I even messed up not even watching that one, but I definitely got to watch this how scary is this one? I think it's really scary. <laughs> I was, I knew what was coming, and I was really scared in the screening when I went to see it the, the first time. Um, I think that's the magic of what the director, James Wan, um, is so, he's so well known for. He's so good at, um, it's a special kind of suspense that he builds up because he bases it all it's it's really far-fetched and kind of quirky and weird, the insidious world is, but he bases it all in something really relatable, which is a family. Um, and okay. so it's grounded in that, and I think that's why these movies are so scary and they really hit close to home for people because you can really kind of imagine yourself in those situations, and it's terrifying. Um, so, yeah, it's scary. Don't watch it alone at night by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, so, and, uh, yeah, it, it was, and the chapter three is uh, going into production pretty soon, um, which is exciting, and it's a great franchise. Some really amazing oh, actors in the oh, cast. Oh, good. Well, I, de- I got to play. I definitely have to play catch up before I even get to three. I definitely want to know what's actually going on. So, with Insidious, you think of Poltergeist. So, what are your thoughts on both of them? Do you think they're both on the same level? Well. um, Poltergeist is definitely a, a very classic, scared the you-know-what out of me yeah. when I was a kid, for sure. Um, and there is a little bit of overlap there because both of these movies, um, sort of the, the conduit into the, the scary stuff is a child. So mm-hmm. um, there, that, is a, that is a definite correlation. Um, and, and, and then I think that's just the vein of all, like, maybe this is a newer film, so maybe we can't call it a classic yet, but I do think in that classic vein of really good, scary, scary horror movies. Um, it's, they're based in a domestic, it's like domestic thriller, I think is the genre that they're calling it. It's, it's, really, uh, it's really up there, I think, just because it's sort of psychological at the same time. It, you know, there's some jump out, scare you kind of moments. There's not a lot of blood and gore, but it, it kind of messes with your head. It's that kind of scary. And I think Poltergeist, does that too. I mean, we can all hear that little girl saying, they're here. You know, I think we can all hear that still in our minds. Right. This movie has a few of those moments that I think kind of are indelible and will become part of the, part of the pop culture as the years go on. And it kind of puts me, it gives me maybe a bit derivative of paranormal activity. The, the plot in here is just quite strong, and I think the the director James Wan was he was he was very good in this and I know he was the creator from Saw so Saw, uh, yeah. Yeah, Saw I love Saw. These horror movies they just really get to you. Freddy Krueger, can't forget about that. <laughs> Michael Myers, all those Halloween movies 
that just really stick with you. So I'm sure just even planning this that you felt like it was, did you feel like it was competitive? Uh, in terms of the movie being being right. relevant, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I think these are the modern these are the modern masters uh, of horror for sure. James Wan and Lee Wanell is the writer of this one, and then um, Jason Blum uh, owns the production company that behind all these movies, which is you know um, Paranormal Activity, Saw, Insidious, this, and it's branching out now. It's called Blumhouse, um, but they definitely hit on something. Um, making these really, really scary, scary films, which are really attributes back to the story being really good um, for a tiny budget. I mean, this movie was made for nothing, I think, in the like $5 million range, which, which really for a big, considering the, the caliber of actors they had and the production quality, um, it's, a, it's incredible. That's a tiny, tiny budget. Um, and, then, and then they do huge box office. I think this Insidious 2 opened in September of 2013, and it was the second highest all-time mm-hmm. opening for a September movie, which is it's amazing and such a tribute to the you know the craft of filmmaking. These guys are so good, um, but it really he's and James now has branched out, and he's I think he's taking a pause. He's stepping away from the horror genre, and he just directed Fast and Furious 7, and he's going on to do some other things. I think he has a superhero film in the works as well. But it's just the storytelling. Um, so I think it doesn't really matter the genre, and that's why this, this team of filmmakers was so, has been so prolific in the last decade. It's just they're good. They're really good storytellers, and they're good at what they do. Um, and we all got to benefit, all the horror fans out there, get the benefit of the, the fact that they chose, they chose some horror movies there for a while. Right. Uh, if no one, like I said, no one's seen it, please definitely go out and see so what would you consider your favorite scary movie? Well, I think I have to say Insidious 2. <laughs> I'm, I'm contractually bound. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Right. Um, I definitely think the Insidious films are, are really up there. You mentioned Poltergeist. Um, I, I, can, I will be a big dork and admit that what, even the movie Gremlins, which, I mean, if you watch it now, it's sort of cute and adorable, and it's these little puppets. But I thought I was really, I, I was really young, and I think I might have even been a little too young to understand what, what I was seeing. That movie scared me so badly. I was right, terrified. Uh, right, because yeah. when you look at the ugly, bad gremlin, it's like, oh, you ugly, and then you're bad. But then you see the little fuzzy one, you're like, oh, you're so cute. You just fuzzy. Yeah. Then they start multiplying. <laughs> when you do Walmart, I'm like, oh, no. Yeah, I think my yeah, only frame of reference was like the Muppets at that time, and I thought all all cute fuzzy things were were good, and I was like, what's happening? I don't understand. Um, but also, like the original Psycho, of course, is is really scary and really well done. Obviously, Hitchcock. Um, I'm yeah, I'm I'm slowly becoming a big a student and a big fan. I was always a little bit chicken to watch a lot of scary movies, but because of this experience. I can look at it from a different perspective now. I can see, you know, put myself in the actor's position and see how much right. fun it probably was to shoot those scenes. I had a blast doing this because it's really, it's a little bit more heightened. You know, the stakes in these scary scenes, like you have to walk down a dark hallway, you know, that iconic sort of a horror scene. You're really playing. It's just a lot of, it's like mm-hmm. when you're a kid and you're really getting into character. So I see how from a filmmaking point of view, um, I can appreciate these films a lot more now. Right. 
Yeah, you can, and I, they're so creative because all the technology has changed. So really just looking at those classes make you really appreciate everything because these people had to work really hard because they didn't have all the advanced things that we have now that we can get to. So I really appreciate those. That's why they'll never die. It's just amazing everybody can right. be making them. you like, leave Michael Myers alone. You can't make it any better. Like, I love <laughs> Halloween. I did. I love yep. Halloween, Lindsay, but to me, you did make him a little slightly bigger, and I was like, Michael Myers was never a big person, so you made this gigantic man. Kind of went so quick, but I was like, oh, okay, I, I like it, but it's not like my classics. What right. actually drew? What actually drew you to do this movie? Well, um, um so I'm a working actor, and and you know I'm really open to any jobs at this point in my career that, you know, any auditions or any opportunities I get, I'm, I'm totally on board. So this was, this was pretty straightforward, an audition that I got um, through my representatives. And I went to the audition, and I had a great read with the casting directors who were awesome. Um, and then in my case, I didn't have to do a callback. They cast me immediately. Um, and it was a really quick process. It was only about a week between getting going to the initial audition and then going into wardrobe fittings and makeup tests and camera tests and starting production. So it was really quick. That's not always the case. I know um you know most often you have you would maybe have several rounds of callbacks and all of that and have to do chemistry reads and the audition and casting process can really vary in terms of how long it takes. Um but it was yeah, it was really quick for me and it just it was it's almost good in a way I think sometimes when it's fast because you don't have any time to overthink it. You just have to go for it with your instincts, and that's what I tried to do. Right. Now, before take, before Ashley taking on the role of a young Elise Rayner, because that's really your character in this one, uh, what were your thoughts on the first part? Well, I, I really had a hard time watching the first one when I first, the first time my friends, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm a big chicken. I thought it was really, really scary. Um, so when I got this audition, of course, I really, I went back and, and revisited the first film and obviously really focused on Lynn Shay's work because I play, the character I was uh, cast in the second movie is the younger version of her character. Um, so I, I really had to, she is very, she's such a wonderful actress and she brought such dimension and such a presence, oh my goodness, the dog is barking, sorry, to, to what she did in the first film, sorry about that, oh my gosh, of course that's happening. Um, anyway, I, I really had to work hard to um, try to match up what she did and, and to blend the two of our sort of personas um, and to just do her work justice, to be honest. So, I, yeah, I went back and, and rewatched that material quite a bit um, to prepare myself and um, made some choices for myself because this is a younger version of the character we saw in the first film. So she wouldn't be exactly the same. You know, you change, you change and grow as you go on in life. Right. So, um, yeah, it was just uh, kind of like a lot of prep and then leave, you leave all the prep at the door and you just go into it with whatever you can bring to the part. Right, I know that had to be great just to sit down with Lynn Shay and then just to go over the movie because that would make me nervous, almost like you're trying to learn from Robert De Niro, like, oh, wow, I got to step up to the plate. You're, you're yes, already I, undone this. 
I was very nervous about that. Um, just just wanted to do, like I said, to do her justice and, and to, you know, make sure there was, it sort of all matched up. But she, and also there's a little weird, it's a weird thing, I think, for anyone to hear that there's going to be a younger version of you. I think that can sometimes, I don't know, that could just be, it just adds a little bit of a strange element to, to things sometimes. But she could not have been more gracious and wonderful and lovely. And right. we spoke a couple of times. Um, so I was so fortunate in that I got to kind of, you know, get to chat with her and, and get to know her and a little bit of insight into what she had done in her previous right. work. So I, I had, this was the best experience. It was so awesome. Oh, I know it was. And it's definitely a whole different content from actually journalism and then going into acting. Because with journalism, you report news all day. And that that was exciting for me, hanging around news reports. But just to act, that's your own personality going into something differently. So, oh, kudos to you, um, yeah, Lindsay, to even getting into that. I used to get so mad at me in the newsroom because I wanted to do, like, little mini documentaries with all my news packages every time I had right. a story to do. I'd be like, let me get this cool, let me do the sun flare. Like, I want to do some effects, some dissolve effects or something. And, you know, of course, obviously that doesn't mesh with the newsroom mentality. So clear, yeah. it became clear to me fairly early on that I really wanted to be a filmmaker and I liked the storytelling human, you know, human aspect of journalism, but I, I had a little too much creative, uh, you know, wanting to to do artsy, creative things. So, I, yeah, I needed to, to, like, listen to that a little bit and go for that go for that side of myself more. Yes. <laughs> and it's great, you know, it's great that the education came first before anything. You know, most times these, these children, they get the idea, oh, I want to be this, I want to be a ball player, I want to be an actress. But in order to get to those things, you've got to have something to fall back on. Education always should be should be a plus in the household. So I'm glad that your parents enforced that into your lifestyle before just putting yes. you on the map. Oh, you're going to be an actress. Okay, but uh, I need to learn this math and read it first. So. And even even still, I, I would don't think my dad would be very upset if I, you know, was a doctor today. <laughs> this right. is still a really, it's a really hard career. But um, they're they're so supportive. I have the best parents, and I'm so grateful for their support. And it's a it's a team effort. You know, it's, they've gotten involved. They've educated themselves about the business. Um, it's an important cornerstone. And and then to know you have your the support of your family on top of it. It's, there exactly. you go. It, it makes it all a lot easier. It does. So growing up, what is the first horror movie you probably remember ever seeing? Um. So I think it was probably, um, I was like four years old, and my parents went out for the evening, and they had a babysitter come watch us, and she had a couple of her friends come over, and it happened to be a thunderstorm in the summertime, I remember very clearly, and they watched the movie It, um, the Stephen King story about with the clown who, you know, comes up out of the sewers and kills oh, yeah. people. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And again, I was so young, and I, my, you know, I was a steady diet of Sesame Street and cartoons. I had no idea what I was watching, um, and I think that they thought I was too young to really even understand at all. But it, it was so scary to me, and I think my mom noticed that I was a little traumatized. That you know, the weeks afterward, when I was too afraid to go to sleep, so 
No, we didn't have that babysitter come back. I think she eventually figured out what had happened, but that's the first one I can remember. And I also remember seeing Poltergeist um, at some point, maybe with my cousins or something. But, yeah, definitely definitely too young for those movies. I was a very young, young, innocent kind of a kid. You know, I, I was a really right. – my eyes were opened when I saw those movies. I have to say I was – Seven when that movie came out. I don't know exactly if I watched it at that age, but when I first saw it, I was, it really did terrify me. And then he down in the little sewer. They all just flow down. And I was like, oh, Lord, yeah, see, yeah. no, no, no. But it, it, it still gets to me. I love, even if I have started over so many times, I just love to know that I can still probably frighten. And I was like, I know I've already seen it so many times, but it's just that thrill, that little rush. It's just like getting on a roller coaster knowing that I'm afraid of heights, but I'm going to still get this <laughs> rush going down and flipped over. So I, I love movies like this. That's why I think Insidious 1 and Chapter 2 definitely fit into that category. It would just take your breath away. And if you're a child, it would definitely traumatize you. Now, do you remember any, were there any particular movies that may just traumatize you as a child, just had you scared? Because I know that you said The Gremlins was one on Poltergeist. Any mm-hmm. other movies? Um, well, yeah, I think it was, honestly, after I saw those those few that I mentioned, It, Poltergeist, Gremlins, I think I I really stayed away from scary movies for a while after that because I, couldn't handle them. <laughs> I had a very active imagination. Right. Um, but I, ironically, I did, my sister and I did really love that show, um, Unsolved Mysteries. It was on every, it was a weekly show. And um, our favorite Ooh, segment was the ones that. about ghosts. It would have every once in a while. And it would scare us so badly, but we, we loved it and we watched it anyway. Um, so that was was a love-hate relationship with that show. Oh, yes. I used to stay up watching those with my mother. I saw mysteries. I don't know how I became so into these type of things, but it's just like horror movies are just really my thing. Some people cannot watch them, but I love them. Especially with the other one, Lindsay, that came out, The Conjuring. Oh, that that was a great one. That one had me on edge. Right. Yeah, like that's that's, a, that's an awesome movie, and Patrick Wilson is, is uh, stars in that movie, and he's also uh, the lead in both Insidious films. So yeah, they're they're an amazing okay. team. That was a scary it, movie. It was. I I really caught. I was on edge when she grabbed her and oh, just that I was like, oh my god, just a spirit. Because when I look at those type of movies, I really think about the spiritual world that we do have spirits around us, regardless if we want to recognize it or not. I mean, they they do exist, and my husband even have been through those period of times. And it just makes you cringe your teeth just thinking about, is there somebody behind me? Will they do anything to me? Are they a good spirit or a bad spirit? So I'll be thinking about that when I watch those movies. Um, oh, yeah, it stays with you for sure. Right. So, um, Lindsay, as far as it goes with your career, what other roles in horror have been offered to you? Well, um, the horror genre at this point, um, not as more, I've, I've had a more comedic and then I've had some more like indie drama projects that I've worked on and that are all coming out. I'm in an amazing film 
called Blackbird that is actually screening at the Black American Film Festival in New York tomorrow. And then it's also screening at Frameline in San Francisco over the weekend. Um, and it premiered at the Pan-African Film Festival, and it was at HBO's Outfest, which is it's all been fantastic. It's um, Monique, Academy Award winner Monique, and Patrick Ian Polk uh, was the director okay. and also stars Isaiah Washington. Um, it's a, it's a sort of coming-of-age indie drama about um, a young man who is in a very conservative religious community, and he's realizing that he thinks he's gay and he's sort of coming to terms with that and how that affects his family and his community. Um, but there's okay. incredible talent in this movie. There's, some, there's singing and music and a lot of laughter. It's, it's a fantastic film. I was so thankful to be a part of that one. We shot it in Mississippi. Um, oh, it was, good. It was just fantastic. Yeah, it was great. And then um, I'm in a film called American Dream, directed by... Janusz Kaminski was also an Academy Award winner, and uh, it was written by Duncan Brantley. And this is, that one is, is scary in a different way. It's, um, it's like a Russian mafia thriller. It's very violent and very dark, and I have a very small role in it, but uh, that is one of the best scripts I've ever read in my life. It's, it's very compelling. It's, it's a really thrilling, scary, scary kind of a film, and I'm so excited for that one to come out as well. And then there's a lot of oh, light comedy stuff. You got to mix it in, <laughs> right, mix it in as, as it comes. Yeah. Um, now, as far as it go, um, now I know that you have been part of the horror convention. It's one coming up. Um, in the next, I think you know horror fans are some of the best fans out there. They are so loyal and rabid. I love it. I was just introduced to that whole phenomenon in the last year. And I think that it's, it's kind of ongoing. I think there are different cult followings for different films and franchises. Um, and they do, I know, like conventions and events around the anniversaries of, like, actual events or when the films came out or commemorative anniversaries of certain films. Um, so I know I think it's like always, there's always some horror movie fans getting together somewhere. <laughs> right. It's got to be totally awesome, though, everybody getting together for a horror convention. It's, it's awesome. And you never really think about the conventions. Come to mind, I remember when they had a, when I was in class, my professor showed a documentary. It was on the Barbie convention. I was like, really? People actually go to these Barbie conventions, be dressed up like Barbie and Ken. I was like, that's amazing. <laughs> they probably got one. I yes. love Betty Boop, so they, they probably have a convention for Betty Boop, but I'm I'm not going to go to a Betty Boop convention. I love her. Oh, I I'm, don't know. It sounds like we should Google that. I bet, I bet we should. Right. I bet they probably do. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's, there's a group for everyone these days, which is kind right. of awesome, and it's kind of a great time to be alive. We can all connect with each other in any small or big way that we want to. <laughs> right. Um, so, so you know, you've been on a set of these movies and everything. Um, what would you say, what what really goes on on the set um, for Insidious 2 especially? What what interesting well, things have you seen happen? Well, I, I love working. I love working. That's my favorite thing. It's like going to Disneyland for me. I love to work. Um, so I'm always in a great mood. Um, I don't know, I think... For a lot of people maybe don't know, working is, on a set is a lot of really, really early morning hours. Like you might be called at 5 in the morning 
Um, and you probably, like I know, on a, it's, every, every film has a different schedule and a different budget, and um, so that determines kind of how long you work and what's happening. But um, we worked in Insidious pretty long days, um, and it would be, you know, sometimes 15, 16-plus-hour days. Um, but no matter when the actors are called, you always have to keep in mind the crew and everyone who's working security and every single other person is there before you are. So no matter, and they're there after you as well. The actors have it really easy, even when it's tough. And if, you know, if you're doing an emotional script or you have a really tough scene, those are grueling days just because you might have to do take after take after take of of something that's really gut-wrenching to do. And no one is taking away from that. I've been on those projects where it's just like, oh, it really takes it out of you. But you always have to keep in mind as an actor that there's a crew of, you know, 50 or 300 people standing around waiting on you to get it right and, and help you and help you do your job and work really hard to do theirs as well. So I always try to keep that frame of reference. Um, there's, there's a team of people often to help you, you know, look your best and have all the wardrobe and props you need ready to go. Um, lots of good snacks at craft services, lots of good, you know, good, good food. It's, if you get the right crew and the right cast, it's like going to summer camp. It's a lot of fun, even if it's a tough shoot or if it's tough material. You're all in it together, and it's a, you, you always know it's a very finite amount of time, and everyone usually has the same goal of making the best project they possibly can. So um, it can be a lot of fun. And for, I almost always had a blast working, working on set. So I, I'm, I just love it. It's my favorite thing to do. Oh, I know you do. Well, Lindsay, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I appreciate you for coming and, and sharing your love. I will definitely make sure I stay up on Twitter with you so we can know when the new movie is coming out. We'll probably see it on commercial anyway. I cannot wait for Insidious 3 to come out, but i gotta catch, I got to play catch-up first. <laughs> well, don't worry. I think it's on every possible media outlet at this point. Um, everywhere, Netflix, iTunes, it's in every store. So you cannot escape Insidious 2. If you want to see it, you'll find it. <laughs> well, and it was a pleasure to chat with you as well. Thank you so too. much. You are so welcome, and you have a blessed one, Lindsay. You too. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Well, well, everyone, I hope you do catch up on Lindsay's time. We have great new things coming out for her. Make sure you go, if you have not checked out Insidious, please do. i got to catch up, so do you. But it's been fun chatting with you, playing around with you, everything. Man, I hope to see you tomorrow at noon. Well, not actually see you, literally, but, you know, stay tuned up for everything. Make sure you check out my fan, Facebook fan page, The Bright Style with Technicia, and I'll see you tomorrow at noon. God bless. Thank you for tuning in to The Bright Side with Tanisha. Come back daily from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. God bless. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woo -er, a hand clapper, a high-fiver? 
I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.